You know, I've been mentioning that we're going to be going in this direction for quite some time. Even last year I was mentioning it, how I want to look at the subject of end times, of end of the age. And about a month ago, the Lord just placed on my heart how I should do it. And, and that is, we're going to look at the two major sections in the New Testament that deal with this subject. Okay, there's, a, there's definitely several other sections, but these are the two major sections. And both of those sections are primarily spoken by Jesus himself, so they're really important. And those two sections are what are known as the Olivet Discourse, which is Jesus's, all of his teaching, the last week of his life. And the other section, of course, is Revelation. The primary author of Revelation is Jesus, okay? And so... We're going to look at the Olivet Discourse these next seven weeks as we lead up to Resurrection Sunday. And then after Resurrection Sunday, we will be diving into the book of Revelation. So, um, what I'm going to be looking at these next six weeks, we're primarily going to be looking at the Olivet Discourse through the lens of Matthew's Gospel. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record extended details of this time, so I'll at times reference Mark and at times reference Luke, but we're going to primarily focus on the Gospel of Matthew. One other announcement before we do get in, I, I, I forgot to remember, you know, Lent is about 42 more days, so if you guys want to just go deeper in the Scripture and just meditate on the glories of the Lord this time on the Passion, you know, I got a devotional for you, so make sure there's 40 devotions, right? So we got about 42 days to go. You can do one per day. Just make sure you're in the scripture every day and, and really be blessed by it. I mean, I'm reading it myself, and I've read it about 25 times, but I'm even encouraged by it, all right? Okay, so, uh, yeah. So, so what we're going to be looking at primarily is Matthew's chapter 21 to 25, and it details the last week of Jesus' ministry. If you were here with us last year, when we were going through the season of Lent, what we looked at is the last day of Jesus' life. Remember, we looked at it from uh, the end of his Last Supper all the way till he died on the cross at Golgotha. Well, this time, we're gonna, instead of just looking at a day, we're going to look at the whole week. And uh, before we dive into Matthew chapter 21, I think it's important to understand how Matthew's Gospel is organized or set up. You know, all of the books of the Bible are, are set up intentionally in certain ways, and there's structures about them, and when we understand the structures, we can uh, even glean more from the text that we're reading in those Gospels. So, Matthew's Gospel is organized very intentionally according to five major teaching sections of Jesus. And so, for instance, like if, if, one, if any of you guys have like red letter Bibles where the words of Jesus are in red and you just thumb through the book of Matthew, what you'll see is that there are five major sections that just have long read for a while, maybe several pages. And these five sections, what they do, what Matthew is intentionally doing, is he's showing how they correspond to the five major epochs in Israel's history and how Jesus is fulfilling these five major epochs in Israel's history in a brand new way. 
So the first major teaching section of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew is probably the most famous one, and it's Matthew 5 to 7, and most people refer to this as his Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, why? Because Matthew 5, verse 1, tells us that Jesus went up on a mountain and he gave this sermon. And this is the only time when we're told, you know, that Jesus really goes up on a mountain to deliver a sermon, and it's his most famous sermon, and it's a very long sermon. And when we think about, in Scripture, of a man going up on a mountain and receiving words from God, and then delivering those words from the mountain to the people, the primary person we think about in, in the Old Testament is Moses. And so this corresponds to the first epoch of Israel's history of Moses. And of course, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, one thing Jesus does is he constantly is referring back to this epoch in Israel's history. For instance, he says things like, you have heard it said, on, you have heard it said but I say unto you. And in at least one of those statements, he's literally quoting the words of Moses, and then he's expanding on how the new covenant, or the reconstituted Israel, would take that principle in a little bit of a new direction. Okay? Um, also, one thing that Jesus focuses on in that sermon is how we are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. You know, that was a theme that Moses delivered to the people, right, as he came down from the mountain, how, about how they were to be a kingdom of priests, how they were to be a holy nation, how they were to be like their father Abraham, people who were blessed in order to be a blessing to others. And so we see that fleshed out in Matthew chapter 5, well, through 7. Well, the next major teaching section of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew is in Matthew chapter 10. And in Matthew chapter 10, this is when Jesus calls the 12 disciples he wants to follow him, right? In a unique way, in a special way. And we're, we've given the names of all 12 uh, disciples. And then he gives them a commission, and he sends them out. Remember, he sends them out to preach the gospel, to heal the sick, to cleanse the leper, to raise the dead. He says, freely you have received, freely give. And what does that correspond to? Well, that corresponds to uh, the next epoch in Israel's history, which is the transition from Moses to the conquest of the promised land under Joshua. What happens before the the promised land is conquered. Well, the 12 tribes, or the 12 spies are sent in from the 12 tribes to spy out the land. Eventually, they do go in and conquer the land, and they conquer all the enemies, and, and they rid the land of the enemies. Well, what is Jesus doing here in Matthew 10 in his teaching and what they're supposed to do? Well, he's showing them how they're sent out as, as uh, sheep among wolves and how they're going to encounter all of these great enemies. But instead of carnal enemies, instead of Canaanites and parasites and Jebusites and all the rest of the ites, right? He's, he's telling them that the true enemy is, is the spiritual enemy, right? It's Satan and his minions. It's all the works of darkness and how they're going to have power and authority over these things. And so this really is, Matthew 10 is the theme of conquest and bringing the promises into the promised land. Well, the third section in Matthew is... Uh, teaching section of Jesus in Matthew is Matthew chapter 13. 
And this corresponds to the next epoch in Israel's history. So you have Moses, then you have the conquest of the Promised Land. Well, after the conquest of the Promised Land is done, which happens all through the book of Judges, we're brought to the time of kings in Israel, okay? So we have Saul, we have David, and we have Solomon, and this is the only time where Israel is under a united kingdom, right? And Solomon is the height. It is the glory of the kingdom of Israel. It is the best that it ever was. It was a time of peace. We're told that every Israelite had their own fig tree. They had their own vine. They were prospering. And there were words of wisdom that were just flowing from the king's mouth. And he, was, he would speak uh, both words of wisdom and parables. This is Solomon, right? So he'd write Proverbs, he'd write Ecclesiastes, he'd write Song of Songs, he'd even write a couple of the Psalms. And this links to Jesus' third teaching section in Matthew, because Matthew 13 is all parables of Jesus. In particular, parables of the kingdom, just as uh, the, the third epoch is the kingdom period of Israel. And so... Um, you know, uh, uh, basically, in fact, in that chapter alone in Matthew 13, Jesus uses the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like, and he compares it to something. He uses that phrase seven times, meaning the fullness of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing as the greater son of David, it has arrived, and this is what it's like. And so I am the greater Solomon, imparting to you greater wisdom. Well, the fourth section of Matthew, teaching section of Jesus, is in Matthew chapter 18. And in Matthew chapter 18, this corresponds to the next epoch in Israel's history, which is the divided kingdom. Okay? And in the divided kingdom, uh, basically what we see is we see prophetic figures rise up. Prophets like Elijah, prophets like Elisha. And what they're doing is... They're calling out the faithful remnant of Israel who will serve the Lord even amongst most of the wicked kings that were reigning in northern Israel and in southern Judah at that time. Well, what we see in Matthew chapter 18 is Jesus is doing the same thing. He is reconstituting Israel. He's calling out a new uh, uh, people to follow him, which he gives a term in Matthew 18 that is unique to it which is the church. He is building and forming his church, and he's giving rules of how this church should operate and shine as a light amidst the wicked and perverse generation. So once we reach the fifth and final teaching section of Jesus, which is what we're going to be looking at today and up until Easter morning, which is chapters 21 to 25, we see that it corresponds to the last epoch in Israel's history. The last epoch in Israel's history in the Old Testament is the destruction of the temple. Okay, So this is during the prophets of guys like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And all of those prophets were speaking about the destruction of Israel's first temple, which was the temple that Solomon built. Well, after Israel was restored to the land, under guys like Zerubbabel, and through the prophecies of guys like Haggai and Zechariah, a second temple was built. And that was the temple that was built. That temple that was built was the one that was still being built during the time of Jesus. 
And what we see in Matthew 21 to 25, just as Jeremiah and Ezekiel gave prophecies of judgment in the temple precincts, saying that that temple would be destroyed, that God's presence was leaving the precincts, and that he was going to do something new. Well, that's the same exact thing that Jesus is doing in Matthew 21 to 25. He's saying there is going to be, and this is a phrase he uses in Matthew 24, we'll unpack it more, but it's the phrase I'm using for this series, there will be an end of the age. The end of the age. Now, there is some debate about what that phrase means. Some people think the end of the age refers to the end of history. Others, and I think this is the majority opinion in Christian history, believe that the end of the age refers to the end of the Old Covenant age, in particular, the end of the temple system and all of its forms. I, I fall in that camp that that's what the end of the age is speaking about. I think it's, to me, I think it's really clear. Um, but Jesus also does speak at, about the end of history as well. So we have, to, we have to keep in mind as we're going through the Olivet Discourse and when we get to Revelation as well, we've got to separate, okay, what is the end of the age in terms of the end of the Old Covenant and its forms, and what is speaking about, what is, when is Jesus speaking about the end of history? Okay, so this just gives you a setup, an idea. We'll get into some of those ideas deeper as we go along uh, this year. But let's dive right now into Matthew 21. So Matthew 21, it begins with Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. In fact, we're told in the Gospel of Luke that he had been setting his face like towards Jerusalem for like at least half of the book of Luke. Like he, he knows he needs to get to Jerusalem. He knows it's going to be his most important time. Yeah, he visited Jerusalem a few times before this, but most of his ministry was in Galilee. And he knew his last ministry in Jerusalem was going to be exceedingly important. And it would be the last time he would ever enter the city before he was crucified. So he basically remains in Jerusalem, especially in the Gospel of Matthew. He remains in Jerusalem from the time he enters it on Palm Sunday all the way to the time when he raises from the grave. And uh, basically, um, just about the entirety of this section is concerned with Jesus confronting religious leaders in the temple precincts. In fact, after he uh, rides into the city on the donkey on Palm Sunday, we're told that he rides straight to the temple. And he remains at the temple from Matthew 21 all the way to the end of Matthew 23. And then in Matthew 24, he finally leaves the temple and he goes to the Mount of Olives and the disciples ask him a question about the temple and they're looking at the temple and he gives a sermon that's devised around the temple. So Matthew 21 to 25 is almost solely focused on the temple from the moment Jesus arrives to the moment basically he then goes and has the Last Supper and is betrayed into the hands of sinners. So uh, it's, a, you know, uh, it's a, a very important and momentous occasion. It is something that God deemed very important to have a lot of space in his word to. Many chapters and, and three of the Gospels speak about this section at length. God wants us to understand why Jesus spent so much time speaking about this subject. So we're going to look at it. 
And, you know, Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, it's usually referred to as his triumphal entry. And it's something we celebrate every Palm Sunday. It's called a triumphal entry because Jesus is recognized as the rightful Messiah and King. He's just recognized as it in a wrong way. He's been recognized as the long-awaited Son of David who will save God's people from their enemies. So he very intentionally fulfills all the prophecies that spoke of that event. He comes riding on a donkey with her colt, just as the prophet Zechariah declared 500 years earlier. And let's just read Matthew 21. I'm going to read part of that section to you. Matthew 21, verse 7. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! So here they're they're shouting the end of the Hillel Psalms in the Psalms. They're shouting, Psalm 118, the great messianic prophecy about the son of David coming into reign. And it's interesting that if you read a little further in Matthew, the story heads straight to the temple cleansing. Now in Mark, we have him going to the temple, but then we have him going back to stay with Mary and Lazarus that night, and then going back to the temple again for a temple cleansing. But Mark, like I said, he just hones in on everything just happening there at the temple, so he just shortens things a little bit. And um, what's interesting uh, and important to note is as Jesus comes in, his first act is to go and to cleanse the temple precincts, right? He, he, gets, he turns over the money changers' tables. He, he, he removes... Um, You know, he castigates all of those who are selling. He says, you made my father's house a den of thieves. And then what happens is he begins to heal people. He begins to heal the lame and the blind. And a bunch of the children who were following him, worshiping him, they form a choir and they're praising him. They're singing unto him. And the religious people are really mad about the children's choir. Okay? But what what happens next, and this ties into the whole theme of what's going on with the temple, is that Jesus has a very prophetically significant and symbolic miraculous event occur. And that is, he curses a fig tree. Remember that story? And this is what happens. Um, I want to read it to you, actually. Let's read it in Matthew's account. It's in Matthew 21, verse 18. I'm actually going to turn there myself. 21, verse 18. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves, and said to it, Let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, You will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done for you. Now, 
What is so interesting about this particular event, and what's interesting if, if we actually look at Mark's gospel, for instance, if you look at Mark chapter 11, you'll notice that Mark sandwiches the fig tree cursing. And what Mark does throughout his gospel is he sandwiches an important event around another event, meaning he places an event right in between two things. For instance, when Jesus heals the woman with the issue of blood in Mark, it's sandwiched right in the, story, the middle of the story of Jairus, his daughter, being raised from the dead. And you see this sort of thing happening over and over. Well, in Mark, the fig tree, what's sandwiched in between the cursing of the fig tree when, when Jesus curses it and before they see it withered, what's sandwiched right in the middle of it is the temple cleansing incident. Jesus going out and driving out all the wicked rulers and bringing healing and restoration to the, to the blind and the lame. That's what's right in the middle of it. And so what we're supposed to see here is that the fig tree stands for the corrupted and unfruitful leadership of the people of God, of the nation of Israel at that time, right? That basically Jesus is saying, okay, I've come to bring the... Um, the covenantal demands and, and Deuteronomy and Leviticus against this nation, and I'm, I'm bringing them to bear, and now basically there's going to be a change. There's going to be a transformation. There's going to be a reconstitution of Israel. There's going to be new leadership set in place, and the people of God are going to look a little different from this time moving forward. And part of that has to do with the fig tree immediately withered. It's interesting, you know, Jesus, he goes up to the fig tree and it see, he sees it just has leaves. It just has, what is the first time we see fig leaves in the Bible? Anyone remember? Right at the very beginning. Adam and Eve, who, Adam, who was the priest of God over all creation. And what did this priest of God over all creation do right after he sinned? He covered himself with fig leaves. What did God think about that? He said, no, that's not going to work. And that's, he said, you know, I'm, there needs to be a slain sacrifice to cover you, right? You need to approach me through the blood of the Lamb. And so what's happening is a similar thing here. The nation of Israel was unfruitful, and it was barren, and it was covering itself with religious fig trees. I mean, with religious fig leaves. This is why Jesus is constantly going around and castigating the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the other religious leaders at that time because they were just religious people who were really unfruitful in what the Lord wanted to do in their lives and in their nation, right? They were making all these new rules and all these new laws and they were making void the word of God by their human traditions and it was a terrible thing that was going on. So Jesus curses the fig tree and says, may no one ever eat from you ever again. And then he goes into the temple and he cleans out all the wicked leadership, right? Which is basically the center part of Israel is the temple. Then he goes back and what do they see? They see the fig tree was immediately withered. And they're like, wow. And then Jesus says something really unique. He says, whosoever shall say unto this mountain. He doesn't say unto a mountain. He doesn't say unto any mountain. He says unto this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea. I think what he's pointing to when he says this mountain, a specific mountain, is he's pointing to the Temple Mount. 
And what he's saying to his disciples, his 12 apostles, who are the reconstituted Israel, just like the 12 tribes made up the first Israel, so the 12 apostles make up the reconstituted Israel. He's saying, basically, you guys, through your prayers, are going to see this corrupt system finally overthrown and done away with. And what we'll see as we get to the end of Matthew 24 especially, and into Matthew 25, is that the apostles' prayers and the prayers of the saints accomplished that fact, and their wicked oppressors were fully overthrown in 70 AD. Okay? And what Jesus said they could do, they indeed do. That mountain was thrown into the sea of the Gentiles, and the people of God were fully reconstituted. Now, let's get to the parables. Got so much here I want to cover. We're going to get through uh, Matthew 21 and 22 today. Next week we'll look at Matthew 23, and then we'll spend the bulk of our time in Matthew 24 and 25. But in the rest of Matthew 21 and 22, what Jesus does primarily is he has confrontations with the three different groups of religious leaders in the temple. And primarily, uh, the main bulk of this section are three parables of judgment that he gives. Okay, And it ties into the similar theme of the temple cleansing. It ties into the similar theme of the cursing of the fig tree. In Isaiah 5, um, I, I, don't think we have, I, I don't think I want to read it. I don't have time to read it. But basically, Israel is compared to a fig tree. Okay. So the fig tree represents the nation of Israel. In fact, there's several passages where that is the case. Isaiah 5, I think, is the most clear passage about that. Um, in particular, vineyard as well. Isaiah 5 is the most clear passage of uh, Israel's vineyard. And that has to do with Jesus' first passage of uh, parable of judgment. So let's dive right in to what Jesus says here in Matthew 21. We're going to look at his two longest parables of judgment. The first is the parable of the vineyard. Matthew 21, verse 33. Jesus says, Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Okay, let's stop right there. What is this talking about? Everyone, all the religious leaders, when Jesus is giving this parable, they knew exactly what Jesus is talking about. He is retelling the history of Israel. God had given lease to the tenants, the overseers, the chief priests, the priests, the, um, you know, the various kings of Israel to watch over the nation. And what happened is both the priesthood and the kingship became corrupted in the Old Testament. So who did God send to them to correct them? He sent the prophets. What did they do to the prophets all throughout the Old Testament? Well, they did exactly what Jesus said. They beat them. Just read about what happened to Jeremiah. They killed one. They killed all sorts of prophets. They stoned another. I mean, Hebrews 11 says some were sawn in two. 
We're told that that was most likely Isaiah who was sawn in two. They stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Okay, so they're kind of getting a picture. What is Jesus going to say next? Verse 36. Then he sent other servants. Oh, verse 37, sorry. Then, last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, this is what God is saying. They will, are the landowner saying, which is a picture of God in this parable. The landowner says, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. So he's sending all their servants, and they're killing them and stoning them and doing all these wicked things to them. Then he says, I'm going to send my most precious thing. I'm going to send my son. Do they treat him any different? No. They kill him. They kill him. What happens to Jesus? We know what's about to happen to Jesus. What do they do? They kill him. His blood be upon us and on our children. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Verse 40, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, these are the religious leaders speaking back to Jesus in the temple precinct. He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This is Psalm 118 as well. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, now he's speaking directly to all of the priests, probably the chief priests, all the religious leaders in the temple. What does he say directly to them? He says, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Meaning, you better fall on Jesus and be broken. Rather than be hit by, we'll get to, this is an allusion, I think, to Daniel chapter 2. Rather than be hit by the stone and crushed to powder. We do know that some of the religious leaders joined him, right? Josephus joins him, Nicodemus joins him, a few others. During the time of the apostles preaching, they join him. But the rest, man, they're ground to powder. We'll see that in 70 AD. They are literally ground to powder. Verse 45. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables... They perceived that he was speaking of them. Now they get it. And they're like, oh man, we just said what the, the vine owner should do, right? Uh, they should lease his vineyard to other vine dressers, right? And destroy the wicked men miserably. And then they realize, wait a second, he's speaking about me. Verse 46. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. So like, man, we got to come at, we want to really kill him. Caiaphas had already said, after Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead a few days earlier, he already said, we got to kill this guy. But now they're thinking, oh man, how are we going to do it? 
ah, Judas, ah, he's going to come to us. We're going to hatch up a strategy and we're going to kill him. So they don't do it in the public. They do it in the midst of night because they're crooked, wicked individuals, as Jesus had said they were. And we'll see in Matthew 23, whoo, we'll see what Jesus says to these guys when he gives them eight woes. But basically, um, here we see, you know, just a clear uh, understanding that what Jesus is saying is that Israel is going to be reconstituted and that he will take the vineyard away from those wicked vine dressers and he will give it to a nation that bears the fruit thereof. I believe what he's speaking of there, I believe he's speaking of the church, that we are now that nation of God that bears the fruit of God, that we are the vine dressers over God's kingdom. And now we have a great responsibility, and that responsibility is to do exactly what Jesus said in John 15, by this my Father is pleased that you bear much fruit, to abide in the life of Christ, to abide in the love of Christ, and to be good witnesses and ambassadors for him in what we're called to do, not to be like the Pharisees, not to be like the Sadducees, who didn't understand their calling. And so they lost, they lost it, right? And, um, you know, one thing I mentioned is, you know, for instance, Jesus hinted at, as, has hinted at this throughout the Gospels, that this is what's going to happen. For instance, in John 4, remember when he meets the Samaritan woman at the well? And, you know, the Samaritan woman is telling him, yeah, our ancestors, we worship on Mount Gerizim. And Jesus tells her, well... The time is coming, right, when people will neither worship me on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, nor in Jerusalem, but the time is coming when those who worship me will worship in spirit and in truth. The temple will be destroyed, yes, because it served its purposes and it turned wicked and uh, it pointed to the ultimate temple, which is those who worship him in spirit and in truth. 1 Corinthians 3 and 6 says, You are the temple of God, and the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Ephesians 2 says that we are living stones, that Jesus is the chief cornerstone, that the apostles are the foundation, right? 1 Peter 4 says we are living stones of this new temple. We are priests unto God. We're not just stones in the temple, but we are priests unto God. We are those who serve Christ and bring blessing to those around us. I mentioned Daniel 2. Let me just read it real quick. Daniel 2. In Daniel 2, Daniel has this, well, Nebuchadnezzar has this grand vision, and no one can interpret it, so he wants to kill all of his wise men. But Daniel says, hold up, Nebuchadnezzar. God gave me the interpretation. And this is what he says about the interpretation in Daniel 2, verse 35. So, first off, basically what happens is Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a giant statue. The head is made of gold, the chest is made of silver, the legs are made of bronze, and the feet are made, I think, of bronze and clay. And what happens is, in Nebuchadnezzar's vision, he sees a stone that comes and strikes that statue, and it's obliterated. This is what Daniel says about it um, in... I'm going to read to you from verse 34 and 35. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, 
that referred to the Roman period, the time when Jesus was there, and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like shaft from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Who is that stone? It's the rejected cornerstone. It's Jesus Christ. That was literally fulfilled, the stone hitting the mountain. That was fulfilled right there when Jesus Christ died. And what happened? He said that little stone that was cut without hands, it's going to become a great mountain. That's the vision that Jesus has for his church, that it is going to have become a great mountain. You know, I think a lot of people are so pessimistic at the church that we're going to dwindle, that we're going to grow cold, that, you know, and we're going to get to those passages in Revelation. But they have this idea that we're just going to be kind of like not very successful in this life. Jesus doesn't have that vision about the church. Jesus has a vision about a prospering and successful bride whose glories cover really the earth. We have to have that vision. Why? That will inspire us to do a better job loving those around us, bringing them to Jesus. You know that statue that's made of gold, silver, bronze, clay, and iron. I think it's clay and iron. You know, those correspond to the temple of Israel. The outer courts is what? It's the bronze laver. Once you get to the doorways of Solomon's temple, there's silver there. Then you go in the temple and it's all overlaid with gold. What the empires of Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome represented was they were a guardian over God's period for that period of time. And in fact, they were great help to Israel. They were not the primary oppressors. They didn't turn oppressors until the temple was destroyed. And then Nero turned against the church, and he started killing people. Remember that. But until that time, they primarily were protectors of God's people. And what happens when the stone crushes it, what is it doing? It's demolishing the temple. In the sense of the temple that protected God's people. What happens, what does Jesus say about the temple? It will be destroyed. And we're going to get to that a lot once we get to Matthew 23 and 24. Talking about the destruction of the temple, and everything that literally happened in 70 A.D., 66 to 70 A.D. Okay, let's get to one more parable, his last parable of judgment. It's in Matthew 22, verse 1. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, again, he's speaking to the religious leaders in the temple precinct, and he's given a very similar parable to the last one. And he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. Ooh, wow. Jesus has already talked about himself as the bridegroom, right? Wow, this sounds exciting. God Almighty has prepared a marriage with his son? You know, you're the bride of Christ? You know the glories of that? I don't think we understand the glories of that. Verse 3, And sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed. The fatted cattle was the best possible meal. 
like a family who had a big farm, they would have one cattle who was being fatted for a great celebration, right? It's kind of like when the prodigal comes home, and what does he have? He's got the fatted calf. He says, yeah, go kill our best calf, our best cattle, and we are going to make merry and celebrate the prodigal. That's what God is doing. He's saying, I got this great big feast. I prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted calf are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways. Said, oh, well, I got better things to do. I'm going to be the director of my life. I don't want to get married and, man, I mean, Christ is my head, and, man, I don't want to do that. They went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitely, and killed them. Wow. Same thing he saw, talked about the vine dressers, right? But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Now, in the prophets, you read the prophets, you know that God stirs up the foreign armies. He stirs up Assyria. He stirs up Babylon to come and destroy the temple, the first temple at that time. They literally are, in a sense, his armies, and he's bringing an end to it. And in a similar way, it applies to what happens in 70 AD when God stirred up Titus and the Roman army, and they came in and destroyed Jerusalem, burned up their city. Verse 8, Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. This is like a picture of the church. We're supposed to gather anyone and everyone. Even if some people are suspicious, right? We might not know if they're uh, real Christians or not. Still gather them. God will do the sorting out in the end time, right? Verse 11, but when the king came to see in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. He didn't have on the robe of righteousness. Verse 12, so he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called but few are chosen. So, here's a, another very direct parable to all of those leaders in the temple precinct. And there's a few different ways one could read this parable. Most people think that the first half of the parable is about the initial people who are invited to the wedding are the people of Israel, right? God has made a covenant with them, they're invited to his wedding. But what do they do? They reject that invitation. So he sends them servants, he sends them prophets, they reject it, and then their city is burnt, which is literally what Josephus tells us happens. Their entire city was burnt. We'll get to that. And then the second half of the city, they say, well, then um, he sends out his servants, and these servants now he's sending out are the Christians, and they have a mission to the entire world. And they say, Come. They're like the bride in Revelation 21 and 22. The bride and the Spirit say, Come. The gates of the heavenly Jerusalem are open. Come experience the glories with the Lamb. And, you know, we're told that many come, right? 
And, that, and, and the wedding hall is filled. Again, Jesus has a great big vision. The wedding hall is filled with guests, right? And then ultimately, um, you know, there, there's a final judgment where one is cast into uh, outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing teeth. We'll get into that in Revelation 19 and 20. Um, so that's one way to read it. The other way to read it is that the first half of the parable is speaking of, uh, again, kind of paralleling the parable of the vineyard, and that it's not dealing with the people of Jesus' day, but it's dealing with the people of the time of the prophets, and that the burning of the city is the burning of uh, the city under uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And then uh, the last half of the parable has to do with Jesus' ministry, calling people in, and that that final judgment there is not the final judgment at the end of history, but rather it's a judgment that happens when the second temple is destroyed in 70 A.D. Um, I'm, I'm not 100% sure myself. I, I primarily go with the first one. Uh, that, you know, it primarily has to, do, that has to do with the final judgment and that it's you and me, the church, who are going out and being witnesses for Christ, um, inviting everybody to come into his kingdom, both good and bad, all right? telling the bad people, hey, you can be good. All you got to do is receive Jesus. Receive his rose of righteousness, right? Put on the garments of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Let's go in and rejoice in the Lord because I tell you what, if anyone is in Christ, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So let's set your, your path on the right path, amen? Let's, let's come worship the Lord. God loves you, right? That's what we're supposed to do. So I just want to end with this. We, the church, now are the reconstituted Israel. In Paul's words in Galatians 6, we are the Israel of God. Jesus chose 12 apostles for a specific reason. Jesus said they would rule on 12 thrones, and they are, by the word they wrote down and by establishing the church in the beginning. The big question is, are we taking our role seriously as the chosen people of God, as the royal priesthood? Do we take it seriously? You know, we live in the age to come. We live in that messianic age. We live in the age of the Spirit. We're no longer under the old age. And the age of the new covenant we, is a time of glory. Yes, there are further glories that await us in the future when Christ wraps up history, but He is wanting to do a massive work in the world through the church right now. So how can we bring that down to our everyday experience? How can you and I be good ambassadors for the King, unlike the wicked ambassadors that were around during Jesus' day? People who have the fruits of love and righteousness in our life, who are good witnesses. Well, there's only one way. I mentioned this. It's abiding in Jesus Christ. Christ needs to be the one our soul loves, as the Song of Songs says. It is only as we are restored in the love of Christ that we will be effective witnesses and leaders. Like the burnt-out bride in the Song of Songs, who has Jesus come and restore her soul. And at the end of the song, she says, let's go out together into the, um, into the, uh, the vineyard and, and, and work again. We can be restored like that. But if we, you know, if we abide in him, we will produce much fruit. That's what Jesus said. So let's take 
intentional time every day to come to Him humbly, to abide in His love, to seek His direction for how we are to love others and represent Him, how we're to love our family, how we're to love our neighbors, how we're to love our co-workers, how we're just to go out and be witnesses for Him. Let's rejoice that we are clothed in His righteousness. Let's put on His armor and let's go out under the charter of the apostolic witness as the reconstituted Israel of God, that we are blessed in order to be a blessing. We are like Abraham, right? Blessed in order to be a blessing. That has always been Israel's assignment, and that is what your and I assignment is today. We are to be witnesses to all people, regardless of their ethnic background, regardless of their socioeconomic status, regardless of whether we like them or love them. Jesus loves them. And so we're supposed to be people who are like that. Amen? So what we're going to do now is take communion.